I've had several people say, uh, you've not worn anything ridiculous for Christmas, and we're halfway through, so you're welcome uh, today. Um, and there are a few of our student ministry girls that get the special significance of what I'm wearing, and you can ask them. But anyway, we're glad you're here today. I am going to get us going today by reading uh, Linus's favorite Bible passage, uh, Luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph. And the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Father, be with us now as we explore this very familiar passage to see a very important application in the lives of those around us and maybe, Father, even in this room today. And it's in the name of Jesus whose birth we celebrate this season that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I kind of felt like after reading that that I needed to say, and that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Um, uh, Fifty-eight years ago, last Saturday night, as a matter of fact, a Charlie Brown Christmas debuted, and it really may be the most beloved uh, Christmas special of all time. But our collective memory of a thumb-sucking, blanket-carrying Linus, sweetly reciting the Christmas passage has taken away for us some of the rough edge these verses carry. 
And the power of what we just read tends to get lost in holiday sentimentality. The events of Luke 2, it's important to know this, were not written for a child's Christmas play. They were written as a record of how Christ started his life among the outcasts of the world. So today I want us to see these three things said to the outcast by the verses we just read. First, do not be afraid, for you are not forsaken. Uh, Now, I want you to consider with me fresh eyes the scene of the first eight verses of our passage. And if you do that, I believe that you can begin to see the forsaken circumstances that they communicate. The events take place, of course, in Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Uh, There's a a town in my home county in Oklahoma called Holbert, and it was the the butt of an endless stream of jokes about its just basic worthlessness. The joke that my dad used to tell me all the time when I was a boy was that uh, a tornado completely destroyed downtown Holbert, and it took three days for anybody to notice. It was that kind of town. You probably have a, a, a town like that in your home county. Maybe, maybe that's your hometown. If you can imagine that kind of town, though, you not only have your Holbert, you have your Bethlehem. That's what Bethlehem was like. Luke tells us, though, that this backwater little town was an unusually unhappy and chaotic place in the times we just read about. Roman occupiers wanted to uh, get some more money from the practically penniless, and so everyone had been required to travel to their ancestral birth town to be counted so the emperor could shake them down for a little bit more. So this backwater town, you can imagine, was probably a seething and angry cauldron. And, but now I want you to let your eyes drift to the stable. Actually, to picture it as a separate building, which is almost what every one of us did, is imagining a wealth that most people of this time didn't have. It was a single building like this. When I visited China in 2006, the little villages that we visited all had two-story homes. The family lived on the second story, and the livestock lived on the bottom floor. This was not Charlotte's Web. I know that most of us have lived all of our lives out here in the suburbs or in town, but as somebody who grew up rural, and I mean super rural, you don't want to live in the floor above a barn. This was a smelly and bleak experience. But now let's let's zero in on the infant himself. In pre-modern cultures, one in four children died the first year of life. One out of every two children never lived to be an adult. And so uh, were we the, the first century owners of this stable, we might not have taken notice of a child being born who probably wasn't going to live long enough to be weaned. With that scene in mind, let's now consider the spiritual implications of all of it. The overtaxed, poverty-stricken, child-mortality-plagued people of backwater Bethlehem were followers of the God of the Old Testament, the one true God who had promised 
since the creation to send a deliverer, to send the Messiah, who would inaugurate a kingdom that would never end. But by this time, there had been no word of him from a prophet for over 400 years. And now the the most powerful regime that that part of the world at least had ever known was gripping its tight its its uh, was tightening its grip on the world so it's not hard to imagine that the most outspoken among them the most embittered among them might have been saying to anyone who would listen god has forsaken us i love living in johnson county Actually, I don't live in Johnson County anymore. I I live in Cass County, Missouri. I can't bring myself to live in that reality, so let's just say this. I love pretending that I still live in Johnson County. So, I loved raising my kids here. Uh, They had every privilege that you could imagine. I've had every privilege available to me. Uh, On the outside... It is easy to look at folks like us and say, how would they ever know what it's like to be a forsaken outcast? But let's pull back the veneer a little bit, and and really we'll be astonished at what we uncover. Even here in Johnson County, we wind up sorting ourselves between those in and those out. You have people who thought their marriage would turn out differently than it has. You have people who thought they would be married. You have childless couples smiling through gritted teeth and tear-glistened eyes at the birth announcements that seemingly are nonstop for their friends but never come for them. You have parents whose children are not as athletic or as academically successful or as socially savvy as their peers feel fearful for where their increasingly societal and self-marginalization will lead. My point is that even in a great place like Johnson County, there are outcasts among us. And if they are Jesus followers, the most bold among them might might whisper, God has forsaken me. My marriage, my dreams, my kids, where is God? And Luke 2's answer is much, much closer than you could possibly dream. So where is he? Where is the incarnation? Where is the stable. There are several books that I take young emerging leaders at Blue Valley through to equip them to be the next generation of leadership at our church. And one of those books is called Gaining by Losing by a pastor named J.D. Greer. And in it, he talks about how the church paints the invisible man in the community. And by that, he means the church becomes the manifestation of the now invisible risen Christ wherever God puts them. So part of how Jesus 
In fact, you could argue most of how Jesus is present among the forsaken is through the church. But what I've discovered is that people in cultures like Johnson County are afraid to open up to someone else when the hard times hit, especially in church. So in those bad marriages and in those shattered dreams and in those infertility battles and in those parenting battles, people will start with the nudge of Satan to wall themselves off from Jesus by pretending that everything is a-okay at church. In other words, we feel like outcasts among the supposedly happy together people called the church, and we keep our mouths shut, and Satan wins because he's cut you off from Jesus. So to the forsaken in the room today, let me just encourage you to reach out. Call one of our elders. Reach out to your deacon. Reach out to your Sunday school teacher. Turn to that friend on your pew before you leave here today and just say, hey, not all is as it seems. I just talked to one of our church members in the first service going through a difficult time. I said, how are you doing? And they said back to me, not well. I said, good. I'm glad you told me. I knew you weren't. You listened. And we talked about how good the church had been in their lives. It all will start when we stop being afraid to admit that everything isn't perfect. And if we'll do that, we may find that Jesus has not forsaken us. He's been very close in the people that we call our church family. Don't be afraid. Also, don't be afraid for you are not forgotten. You know, some of the most beautiful pictures in the Bible are of shepherds caring for their sheep and some of the great heroes of the Bible were actually shepherds, David and Moses, just to name a few. But by the time the first century rolled around, the public perception of the occupation had lessened considerably. Rabbinic sources of the time characterized shepherds as being dishonest and thieving, leading their herds onto other people's land, pilfering the owner's crops, and pasture, the general lack of supervision that shepherds had led many to conclude that they stole from their flock's owners, taking animals for themselves, but telling the owner of the flock that it had been lost to predators. As a result, folks were at the time warned to never buy anything from a shepherd on the presumption that it would be stolen goods. They were legally prohibited from being a, 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 a judicial official, and they could not serve as a witness in a court of law. Imagine that. We can't have you call that person as a witness. They can't be trusted. That's the shepherd of the first century, a, a Jewish commentator on Psalm 23. Psalm 23, one of the most beautiful passages about shepherding in the entire Bible, said that shepherds were holders of a despicable occupation. And this inglorious reputation 
was even more pronounced if you were a hireling shepherd, which the Christmas shepherds, because of the context, uh, there being a lot of people from out of town, uh, hireling shepherds just kind of getting a job, that's what these Christmas shepherds in all likelihood were. Christ even alludes to the reputation of hireling shepherds in John 10 when he says that a hired shepherd sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees because he cares nothing for the sheep. That's your Christmas shepherd. Take a really, really good look at that nativity. (laughs) That ain't them. That's not them. They aren't David shepherds making sheep to lie down in green pastures and leading them beside still waters. They are the kinds of people who would prompt men to put their wallet in their front pocket and women to clutch their purses if you saw them on the street. Head down, no eye contact. Those people freak me out. And so what Luke 2 is telling us is that there were hoodlums in the fields outside of Bethlehem that evening when, do not miss this, the glory of God surrounds them. Throughout Israel's history, the temple in Jerusalem was the only place available on earth where mortal men could experience the glory of God. And now God's glory previously only associated with that temple, was being poured out in a field to the dirty underbelly of society called shepherds. God bypassed the religious hierarchy, and he looked down at these vagrants and said, you know what? I'm going to tell them first. What's it like to be forgotten? For many Christmas wouldn't be Christmas without watching certain movies, Christmas shows. And for many, Christmas wouldn't be Christmas if you didn't watch Jimmy Stewart and It's a Wonderful Life. But but one of his last acting credits was actually another Christmas-themed work, a TV special that came out when I was in high school called Mr. Kruger's Christmas. I just have an affinity to find these forgotten uh, Christmas specials. I have shown the staff before something called uh, Nestor the Long-Eared Christmas Donkey. And um, yeah, you laugh. It made me cry. (laughs) And they, uh, Aaron back there said, that was so weird. It was not weird. It's beautiful. It's art. Anyway, back to Mr. Kruger's Christmas. It's about a lonely, aging widower who's living in a basement apartment and only has his cat, George, for company. And he finishes his work for the day as the custodian of the building, and he ventures out on Christmas Eve to buy a tree, engaging in these Walter Mitty-esque kinds of fantasies about a better life, as he does. He returns home, and he falls asleep listening to Christmas music, but is awakened to find some carolers outside of his window. And he beckons them to come in and to visit him, offers them hot chocolate, but then they leave, and it's just heartbreaking. He's just there. He's alone, and he's forgotten. I won't talk about the rest of it so that you can watch it on your own and go to therapy. (laughs) But watching that all those years ago was probably the first time that I became aware that there are people that the world forgets. And that isolation 
can be especially acute at Christmas. And yet Christmas actually begins among the forgotten and the despised in the fields outside of Bethlehem. Christmas begins with the Mr. Krugers of the world. Who in your world is forgotten? Is it a family member that you've written off? Someone you're dreading seeing next week? Could it be a neighbor? At the exact moment I wrote a neighbor, question mark, in my notes about a month ago, I got a phone call. I looked at the caller ID. Yes, preachers do that. And I went, ugh. It was somebody I'd written off. I answered it because I was writing a sermon. (laughs) And I got an opportunity to minister to someone that I had written off. The shepherds remind us that God is at work in people that we've forgotten, that we would think are unlikely to have God at work in them. So if you're forgotten, if you feel forgotten, don't be afraid. But perhaps the most encouraging piece of this classic Christmas passage is the reminder, do not be afraid. For he is not finished. Now, I think my favorite moment in this passage is to contemplate what's not written, to kind of contemplate the white space, in particular between verse 14 and 15. Because just as quickly as the glory and the angels appeared, it was gone. And in my mind's eye, I can see a few head shakes and hear some half-finished sentence. Did you just... Was that... And we don't know who, but somebody snaps them out of it and makes a fateful suggestion to which everyone agrees. Let's go check this out. And from that point on, they quite honestly don't care what anyone thinks or about their past reputation. They leave their flocks, not caring that some folks would point to their absence as further confirmation that shepherds just can't be trusted. They tell everyone uh, what has happened, and Luke tells us that people wondered at it. That leaves the door open for the idea that some believed what these untrustworthy shepherds were saying, and some heard the story and thought, well, that's a shepherd for you. You just can't trust them. But they don't care. And everyone they told and everyone who ignored them has been lost to history. But their story changed. Their their purpose transcended their circumstances because God visited them in their glory and changed the trajectory of their lives. So, If you feel forsaken, and if you feel forgotten, make sure you've got a pulse, and then if one's there, say the story's not finished yet. God is still working the plot lines of my life to make my life more than I could have ever dreamed possible. All of that is what is underneath Linus's sweetness. 
Under all of that is the story of a Savior making his home among the outcast. In our midst, even in Johnson County, and even at Blue Valley Church, there are outcasts. The quietly forsaken, feeling God's left them, the openly forgotten. And they feel their situation is unique and that it's baked in, that the concrete is set, and Christ is never really going to take notice of you. If that's you today and you're here, I want you to hear my challenge and my permission, not like I'm somebody that mediates permission to somebody, but hear me out. I want you to hear my permission to say to someone, it's not okay. It's just not okay. The diagnosis stinks. The, the bills don't add up. My kid's a jack wagon. <laughs> it's not okay. It's just not okay. Because if you will get to the point where you will say that, then I believe that God's people in this place will not distance themselves from you. They will come to you. Last week in this service, we baptized one of my friends and coworkers at Target. I've shared the story with you. I, I work a day off at Target. I did it because I had to do some Social Security stuff. That's all taken care of. I've stayed there because it's giving me the opportunity to get outside my ministry bubble. And some of those people were here last week to see that baptism. One of them came up to me Friday and said, when I go to church, I feel like I have to be a certain way. But when I was at your church, I felt like I could be me. And I said, yeah, we are a mess. <laughs> I, I did. I said, we are a mess. And so I know based on someone outside of the bubble telling us about us, that there are a lot of people here going to step into and not away from someone who says it's not okay. So tell somebody it's not okay. Stop pretending. Stop pretending. But then the second thing is obviously make a commitment not to be the one who steps away. I guarantee it. Every person here has got some kind of plan after this is over. I'm going to guess it involves the number 1587, and it's taking place in Buffalo. Or where, where are they? Huh? I don't know where they are. They're somewhere, but they're going to be somewhere. New England. There it is. Everybody's like, well, I'm not leaving until he fixes that. And I know everybody's got something to do, but God may have an appointment for you that's more important than a game. And so stop if somebody reaches out and have the conversation. Because we are painting the invisible man in our community and for one another when things aren't okay 
in this room. I believe that God's not finished writing everybody's story and is not finished writing the story of the impact this church can have on people who feel forgotten and forsaken. Let's go to the Lord in prayer right now.